We're rolling. No. Counting us down. No. Three. Two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Missing Out. I am Tari J. I am Lex Michael. And if you haven't subscribed, make sure to do so. You know where we're available. iTunes, Google Play Store, Stitcher, Podbean. Subscribe wherever you can. Make sure you leave them sweet, sweet comments. Because we read them here on this show. Also, if you like Twitter, why don't you follow us at Missing Outcast. M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T. Yeah. C-C-A-S-T. What? What did I say? You stopped at missing out. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. We could actually, we could play this back if we have to. No. I was so, I felt so good too. Cause I was like, oh, he's going to nail it this week. And you just, you, you were so close and you just fell off at the end. I C-A-S-T. S- maybe I have dementia cause I could have sworn <laughs> I said it and I was there, but it's fine. You know where to find us. Missing out, cast. M I S S I N G O U T. Yep, that's it. That's all it is. That's it. We're gonna get a lot of comments about people who can't find our Twitter. <laughs> Where are they gonna tell us on Twitter? Boom. Well, they can Boom. tell you your personal Twitter. That's true. What's your personal Twitter? Well, if you wanna at me, it's at Tari J T A U R I J A Y. And if you are incensed that you can't find our show Twitter, you can at me also at Tari J. <laughs> yes, please make sure to follow me. But if you want to say nice things about stuff that you like and feel positivity towards, feel free to at me at my Twitter, which is at the Lex Michael. Yeah. And if this is your first time listening to Missing Out, what do we do here again? We introduce each other to different media it is (laughs) wow watching you flip it's like you flipped personalities it's like it's not just that you were answering your own question there was a distinct shift from one persona to the other persona that happened in front of me if you're listening you couldn't see it happen but it was pretty it was like watching donner superman and watching christopher reeve go from uh clark to superman that shit where he's, he's a completely different person on a dime yeah it was like that they could feel it and they were like oh man he was me in that moment and then he was the uber tari right and it was like i totally get now why nobody knows it's him when he puts on glasses it's true like that's how big the shift in in like mannerisms and body language yeah, is totally yeah and then as i was doing it i like fumbled over a bunch of stuff and hit on my coworker. It was real dope. Yep, it was super dope. Yeah. Please don't hit on me again. Um, I can't promise you a thing. Wink, wink. Here on a missing wink. out, uh, we are we're uh, real real big on uh, no harassment and consent, and yep. And we ain't got no HR department. No. Ooh. So we just respect each other. Uh, but what else do we do here? <laughs> In between uh, bouts of respecting each other, uh, what do we do? So, uh, Tari, you and I grew up differently. We come from uh, different different cultural backgrounds. And because of our differing experiences and different points of origin, we found different pieces of media at different times. Uh, pieces of media that we connected with that really spoke to us. And we feel like the other might be missing out on some of that entertainment. So we like to share these bits of art and culture with each other and also use them as a way to discuss our experiences, our thoughts, our own goofy bullshit. But that's why we call it the retrospective. That's introspective. Am I, does that track? Am I yeah, right? Am I right? That's exactly right. That's what, okay. That's what we do. I, it took me, what, 30 episodes and I finally figured out what we do on this show. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it really takes some time. We were really playing a slow game. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Uh, Three dimensional chess? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 10 episodes per dimension. <laughs> Um, so today's piece of media we're, that we're talking about is that sounded so clinical. Today's piece today's of media. Today's piece of media. Like you're getting a scalpel out. 
<laughs> um, well, yeah, because I'm about to dissect this movie. You know what it is? It's not a scalpel. You got one of those little claw tools to pick up a diamond. Ooh. And we're going to examine like a diamond. Yes. And you're going to ask me if I want to know what it's worth. And I'm going to be like, no. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you anyway, because I'm an <laughs> asshole. All right. What are we talking about? We're talking about uh, the 2013 film, The Counselor, uh, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, a star-studded film featuring Michael Fassbender, Cameron Diaz, um, uh, Penelope Cruz, Javier Bardem, um, a special guest appearance by Hank from uh, Breaking <laughs> That's right. Bad. Dean Norris is in it. Uh, <laughs> in, in one, t- one scene appearance from both Dean Norris and John Leguizamo. Yep. Only in one scene, like in the last third of the movie. Yeah, it's real weird. But also you got your, uh, you got your Brad Pitt. Yes. You got your uh, Bruno Gans shows up for a scene. You got your uh, Ruben Blades shows up for uh, a pretty pivotal phone call. It's a uh-huh. big, big cast. Um, Ridley Scott made this movie after... Prometheus. There was a, a string of movies he did between uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. It was this, I think, The Martian, uh, which is also great. Like Martian, even though it did it certainly was better received than The Counselor upon its initial release, I still feel The Martian is pretty underrated. Yeah. I also think he did Exodus, which I actually haven't seen, but that's the one that is known primarily for being the movie about ancient Egypt starring a bunch of white people. Ooh. Yes, I remember. I, really, I, should, that one. I, I should say it's one of the movies most famous for being set in <laughs> ancient Egypt, starring a bunch of white people. Yeah, um, haven't seen it. I hear if you can get past that aspect, it's all right. Yeah. Um, but I I want to say right because Prometheus is twenty twelve, so this would have to be his first outing after Prometheus. He reteamed with Michael Fassbender as the titular counselor. Yeah. Does not have a name. He's just he's always referred to as the counselor. Uh, based on a screenplay by Cormac McCarthy, most famous as a novelist. He's the author of No Country for Old Men, Blood Meridian, The Road. He wrote, so, all right, sidebar, this is bonkers to me. This is, this like reinforces how not talented I am. Uh, So The Counselor, you can get the two disc uh, extended cut Blu-ray for like, I got it for like six bucks on Amazon. Mm-hmm. On the disc with the extended cut, there is this really excellent three and a half hour feature that is it is essentially the movie with Ridley Scott's audio commentary, but uh, seamless branching. Like you don't have to wait and look for an icon and hit a button. It'll just go right into these big behind the scenes pieces. So you get a really excellent, super detailed overview of the entire production, which considering how poorly this movie was received upon its initial release, it's pretty noteworthy that they put this much effort into the supplements package on the disc. Yes. Early on in the movie, there's a little bit where they talk to Cormac McCarthy, and he was talking about how he was in the middle of a big writing project. And I think it was like it was two couple of parts. It was like a big project and a smaller project that were both ultimately part of the same overall thing. He wrote the script for The Counselor as a way to take a break between the two other parts of this bigger writing assignment. And he talks about how, yeah, he just wrote it as like a little, like as a relaxation exercise almost. And then he went to sell it. It sold. He looked at the money he got for selling that script and went, what, maybe I should just do this. This is much easier, (laughs) which I just find, I find so bonkers. Um, But as I alluded to, not very well received upon its initial release. As far as I'm aware, still holds a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now that, if you're keeping track, is pretty dang rotten. Why then, uh, Lex, you may ask, do you want to champion this movie if it was so poorly received? Doesn't that mean it's bad? Doesn't a 33 on Rotten Tomatoes mean this movie must be garbage? First of all, sit down, kids, and let's talk about how Rotten Tomatoes works. A 33% does not mean the movie is 33% good. It's not a pass-fail. Rotten Tomatoes is a critics, it's like a review aggregator. What that ultimately means is that 33% of the critics who saw the movie liked it. Um, Well, Lex, you may say, doesn't that mean the movie is bad? Well, maybe, but in this case, I think... It's a combination of two factors. One, I think uh, this is a movie that if, if you watch, no matter how much you love it, pretty clear from the opening scene why this maybe didn't play so hot with general audiences. Um, but in many ways, it's a very, it's an incredibly dialogue heavy story. Most of the story is conveyed through dialogue. It right. really does feel like a novel that Ridley Scott set pictures to. In that respect, you could almost make an argument for it as anti-cinema in a way. Because yeah. if, if pure cinema is, like as I think as Hitchcock described it, 
with pure cinema is just uh, like the kineticism of telling a story through motion and imagery. This is essentially the opposite of that in that there are breaks where there, there's a bit more action, a bit more visual storytelling, but primarily this story is told through dialogue and conversation. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of big audiences, like big mass audiences aren't necessarily there for like the super heady talky stuff, especially when it is the, as bleak as this story gets. That makes perfect sense to me. What also makes perfect sense to me as well is that the version that I first watched was the extended cut. The theatrical mm-hmm. version, I think, is a full 17 minutes shorter. Yes. That can make a hell of a lot of difference as far as how your movie ultimately ends up playing. I think, I believe very strongly, that if this movie were to get a critical reappraisal even just five years on, we would feel very differently about it. But it seems increasingly that we as a culture don't really do that anymore. We tend to pass judgment on something real quick. Everybody lines up to slam dunk on the thing, and then we all move on and forget about it. If we weren't quite that way, and I would argue that maybe that's not the best way to be, if we weren't quite that way, I think, yes, I think we'd already be due to reappraise the counselor, and I think that reappraisal would be much kinder to it. Um, so I have a couple questions. Yes. Do we know what content was removed in the theatrical version versus the extended cut? I know that there are certain scenes that are not present in the theatrical cut uh, in total. I believe the Toby Kebbell scene, for example, is not there and is it the scene where toby kebbell like they're at the it looks like they're at the track maybe and he's having the counselor's having lunch with laura and toby kebbell approaches them at the table and it seems like he's just there to needle him a little bit yeah i believe that scene is excised completely in the theatrical cut and i think yeah you could argue that as far as the plot totally superfluous but i think there's a lot there in terms of telling you who the counselor is i think the way the counselor reacts to that situation the way he gets so He's ready to laugh it off at first, but when he gets pushed just a little too much, he makes he doesn't fully make a choice because he doesn't get into a physical altercation with yeah. Toby Kebbell's character, but he's just on the precipice of making a cho- an impulsive choice that could end very poorly for him, which tracks very directly onto what his journey is in this entire movie. Um, but watching him handle that in microcosm, I think, is interesting in terms of what it reveals about him. Again, strictly necessary for the plot? No, but interesting character stuff. Um, right. And I think obviously it wouldn't just be entire scenes. There would be conversations that were, that were massively truncated. I've actually never seen the theatrical version. So now that I've internalized the extended cut, um, I'd like to now go back because I'd be able to pick out, I think a little better what was missing this. Okay. So full disclosure, I did not see this movie when it first came out. As I mentioned, haven't seen the theatrical cut, but I didn't even catch up with the extended cut till honestly, just last month. Uh, my friend Jay, who I know uh, I've uh, mentioned, listens to this show. Yes, I've been yelling at me for years to watch, literally for years to watch The Counselor. I want to say if it came out in 2013, if not the end of 2013, certainly by 2014 was like you got to watch The Counselor. You got to watch it. Dude, this movie's so cool. And I was like, uh, I don't know if he actually said so cool, but he's <laughs> like, this movie's dope or whatever. Whatever it is, he says, J- yeah. Jay, if you remember what you said, you let me know. Um, comment below. <laughs> comment below. Like, subscribe, rate us. Five stars, you piece of shit. Um, so <laughs> that's how I talk to my friends. Um, so he kept yelling at me to watch it, and I kept saying, "Yes, I'm definitely. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it." I did at one point go, "Isn't wasn't this movie like? Didn't people really hate it?" And he's like, "Yeah, but they're all dumb. It's really good." And I was like, "All right, I really, I'm going to get to it." Uh, a couple of times, like he came out and and visited, and we like hung out a, a few times since then. And once or twice, he was like, "I have, I have it with me." We should watch it. And I'm like, yes, let's definitely do that. Didn't happen. <laughs> so right. it took me literally until about a month ago to catch up with the counselor. Finally. And I went, oh, I was a fool for not having done this sooner. Um, I was so taken with it that, yes, that very quickly I went, all right, I got to make Tari watch this so we can talk about it. Okay. I got to talk to somebody about this movie. Yeah. Um, but having said that again, like, yeah, it uh, from the very first scene immediately clear to me why some people were put off well so let's talk about that first scene a little bit i I have other questions but i want to i only want to talk about it because last week we were talking about how unsexy the scenes were in 50 shades of gray kept 
thinking about some of the stuff in Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay, so the first, the opening scene, and again, like if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie, go check the movie out. Um, opening scene is the counselor and Laura, Michael Fassbender and Penelope Cruz, uh, mid coitus. They're under the the blankets in their bed, and they're t- he's he's encouraging her to talk a little dirty to him, mm-hmm. and they're it's very. If you're not prepared for it, and you're if you're a little. Uh, conservative let's sit there we go that's the word i was like i had a word in my mind and i was like that's not that's not the one conservative yes if you're if your tastes are more conservative right away i think you're gonna find it very off-putting but i quite like this scene because it's so yeah it's a little it's a little dirty it's it's, it's raunchy as shit there he's talking about like you know they're talking about like fingering uh her and like it's, it's pretty it's pretty graphic yeah but it's to me and you tell me if you felt differently it feels so honest. If it feels uncomfortable, it's because to me of how honest it feels um, and how it doesn't shy away from the fact that like, yeah, like I, I totally buy in this scene. These two people are completely in love with each other and they yeah. are so into each other, uh, not just sexually, but certainly sexually. Part of what. Okay, so remember, remember we were talking about Fifty Shades of Grey last week and I said a lot of the a lot of their interplay felt very much like an extraterrestrial was trying to mimic what earth relationships are like. Yes. This almost felt like the inverse, right? Whereas 50 shades of gray felt like an alien was writing about their perception of what human relationships are. And occasionally they brought in a human to punch up a couple of scenes. Yeah. This feels very much like a human being wrote an incredibly raw and a little little uncomfortable in how like because you're it's so intimate yeah. it really does feel like you're invading an incredibly intimate moment yeah it feels it, like you poked your head under their covers and you're like i'm gonna check out they sexy time right so it feels so real and so human and then it feels like cormac mccarthy took his script and handed it to an executive that was an extraterrestrial who doesn't have the same hangups about depicting stuff like that, that a lot of human studio executives, I guess that alien would be Ridley Scott, which totally tracks for me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it feels so, and they don't, there's no nudity. I mean, you see like, you know, like their, their sides, but right. you don't see, there's nothing graphic as far as depicting what they're talking about. Yeah. But their, their dialogue is fairly, ex- I mean, look, you wouldn't want to sit your kids down and have them watch the opening of the counselor. I'll put it that way. Unless you wanted that to be the way that you explain sex to them. Yes. And you're like, Hey, I know they said it on this other podcast I made you guys listen to, <laughs> but make sure that if you want to please your person, you go down on them. That's a, a, a super duper requirement. Also, finger stuff, super good. Oh, I would just be like, all right, you're 11 now. Sit down, <laughs> watch this entire film, and ask me your questions. Oh, no. Do you Have you ever heard of a snuff film? Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, geez. I want to, I do. I would love to ask an 11 year old if they know what a bolito is. Um, so, but yes, it felt, it, I was reminded very much of, the the intimacy in uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and how it really did feel like a complete 180 from that, whereas the Fifty Shades of Grey intimacy felt as cold and clinical as I think sex can feel and still count as sex. Yeah. This felt like the opposite. This felt so raw and passionate and real and human to such an extent that we are not used to seeing in uh, at least pseudo-mainstream theatrical fare that it feels... Even, weirdly even more jarring than the cold clinical intimacy of Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. Because it's it's less I, I it's less cinematic. I'm making air quotes. Like it's not something that was like set to sexy music and, and it, it didn't even really serve to like extend the plot. It was just like look two people in love. They're pretty. They like to please each other. There's a lot of yes in this scene. So like just really like sit in with this love scene because It'll it'll make you hurt later because yeah. just establishing that really like led to you investing in these characters being together down the road. And and two, I feel like that goes back to that. And this jumps way ahead, but the Toby Kebbell scene I think is also great, not just for uh, 
illuminating aspects of the counselor's character as an individual, but I think you see different layers of his relationship with Laura in that scene as well. Mm-hmm. He's obviously the one who's far more ready to, if he has to, he's like, yeah, he stands up and he gets in Toby Kebbell's face a little bit. And it's like, all right, if this is going to go that way, like he's not going to back down. But Laura, without standing up, also is not going to take his shit. Right. And they you see in ways where they ways they balance each other and ways that she is able to without being controlling, without like keeping him on a leash, is able to help rein him in a little bit. Um and it's interesting the choice he makes in the movie, which ultimately leads to the the downfall of everyone around him, essentially. Yeah. The choice that he makes, they specifically make it a point to mention that he doesn't tell her about it. If yeah. he had told Laura about it, I I doubt, based on what we saw, I doubt he would have gone through with it. Because I think, I don't think she would forbid him, certainly. But I think they would have talked about it. And I think eventually he would realize that that was not the right choice for them, no matter how desperate things were. Yeah. But that too, like that that scene, um, it's, it's like you're talking about the character stuff, where it's not plot related at all. But you see the two of them as a unit and like you I completely buy like yeah these people not more the counselor than Laura the counselor is a bit of a weird there are moments where he seems weirdly almost creepy and predatory in the way just the way he says something or a look that he gives but you still completely buy that these are two people that are they're right they're a correct match for each other because even if he is a weird a creep whatever and he's clearly has no compunctions about getting involved in some very seedy shit certainly until it's too late anyway. Right. They, they're, they're so, yeah, they're so simpatico and they're so able to be what the other person needs them to be, which of course, like you get all of these moments and the more of them you get and the more confident you are and how strong they are together, of course, then the more and more and more devastating where things ultimately go become. Yeah. Becomes. I've yeah. lost track of my tenses. It doesn't matter. Point. Grammar is you're you're in a grammar safe zone here. Hell yeah. Ain't no grammar in this grammar, grammar bubble. Um so that leads me to a number of plot questions I have. And I don't know if I was tired when watching it, but I just need some clarification. And to be fair, the first time I watched it, there were a few things where I was like, wait, what? And there are a few things that aren't actually explicitly answered. But okay. go. Um, so my first one is um, about the counselor, like what his role in this drug deal was. Um, like it, it seemed like just let me let me tell you what I think happened and then you can correct me. No, see, that, I may be able to correct you, but I also might only be able to offer my interpretation of it. That's fine. OK, um, so it seemed to me. Like, they essentially needed his help in establishing the, um, the like, front company. And he needed the money mostly to pay for this sweet, sweet diamond he bought. Um, and since he was part of the deal, he was, that's why he was blamed. Because, like, my main questions are, what was his role? Why was he blamed? And so why part did of he why, the money? Part of why he's blamed is the this courier that you keep you see throughout the first like half of the movie yeah, is the son of the Rosie Perez character. Yeah. And he's assigned to represent her for, I think capital murder charge is what he says. Right. Um, she's his son and she asks him when he's, when he is, uh, arrested for speeding essentially. Uh, and he's doing like two Oh six. And we get that great line where he's like uh two Oh six is, is a person's weight or a time of day. That's yeah. not speed. Um, he's responsible for getting the son out of a speeding ticket, but, the son, who is a courier, uh, has a package on him and is uh, dispatched by some some other entity. And to me, it's not ever maybe maybe I still miss something, but it's not ever explicitly made clear. Like there is uh, there's the cartel, and it's the cartel's package, and the cartel is ultimately who points the finger at the counselor. Right. But then there seems to be this other entity, and maybe they're involved with the DEA, CIA, government, whatever, but they're also very cool with murder. Um, They dispatch the courier, and they acquire the package. Yeah. Uh, The counselor ends up getting blamed because they found a direct link between him and this courier. So then the question would would exist, well, what, what was your role in this? Because this didn't happen until you got involved 
and suddenly this dude has a direct connection to you not only do we have to scrap this deal completely but we're we're gonna kill you like we're just gonna kill the shit out of you because now we can't trust you right well okay or if we're not gonna kill you we're gonna burn down your entire world yeah so okay and that's very like there's more there's more specifics to it and somebody ridley scott might listen to this podcast and go you're all wrong uh, I hope so. Ridley, Cor- Cormac McCarthy would below. be like, you know nothing of my work. <laughs> um, but that's that's the impression that I got. Okay. And so the cartel. Oh, but also, sorry, sidebar. But also at the same time, like Malkina is just hardcore stirring the shit. And right. that's that's one thing that is never made explicitly clear what her actual connections are. It seems by the end of the story that she is actually very well connected and has been at least up to a point or at least uh, up to and past a certain point in the story has decided to just play everybody. Um, And they, a lot of people have questions about what her actual motivations are, but I think it's not necessarily important, like what she wants to do with all of this money that she's going to acquire, but it's more about how she's a predator. Uh, She's got those leopards. She's got leopard spots tattooed on her, yeah. which I think is a cool visual indicator that she is not unlike these predatory cats. And there are a couple of references to in the story of her being um, like ravenously hungry. Yeah. And it's just that. It's this animalistic predatory instinct. Um, she talks about the first scene you see Malkina in where she's talking to uh, Reiner about how she doesn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. To miss something will be is essentially to hope it will return, and she's just doesn't have that. Right. Um, her final scene, she talks about how she misses her one leopard that's still alive. Yeah. But it's not just missing the leopard. It's not just I miss my cat. It's I miss the elegance of watching it kill. Yeah. And that, like, all of that to me adds up to a picture of a character who is driven entirely by predatory instinct. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is enough motivation. I don't need, you know, she wants to, to she wants revenge against somebody or she wants whatever. That tracks perfectly. Like, she is, she's, she's an animal for all intents and purposes. She's driven by animal urges. Sidebar, I want to shout out Cameron Diaz in this movie because I'm not, I'm certainly not uh, anti-Cameron Diaz. I feel like Cameron Diaz, and this isn't necessarily, uh, I don't think this necessarily speaks to her lack of range or, or possible lack of range. I think it more speaks to the dearth of great roles for women in movies. Yeah. But I feel like she's only afforded the opportunity to do the, the kind of one thing that we see Cameron Diaz do most of the time. Mm-hmm. And that thing is totally fine, but that thing doesn't necessarily excite me, or I'll phrase it this way. If you'd explained to me the Malkina character before I saw the movie and you told me Cameron Diaz was playing her, I don't know how excited I'd be because I'd be trying to map the one thing I feel like I see Cameron Diaz do right onto that. And it seemed very, it just didn't seem like it would work at all. I think she's really great in this role. I think this is maybe my favorite work I've ever seen her do. Yeah. She's sufficiently menacing. Like, especially in that scene where she's talking to Laura and they're they're on the phone and it's really darkly lit and all you see is like a slight speck in her eyes, kind of like you would in, as you were saying, like a predator's eyes as they are about to pounce or they're like watching their prey at night. Um, and she's also has this like, I don't know, coolness about her that I, I think she doesn't usually get to play. Like usually she's very much like a, a love interest or like, I, for lack of a better word, like sometimes movies will treat her like a sex object. Well, and um, that's what I, that's what I mean. It's like, there is a very, I feel like a very standard Cameron Diaz character that she almost always plays. Yeah. And again, I don't think that speaks to a potential lack of range on her part. I think right. that's just what, what people keep offering her. And I don't, I don't know. I'm not uh, any of Cameron Diaz's reps. Surprise. Uh, but I would imagine that that yeah, that's what's that's what's. I don't think it's like nobody's trying to help her expand beyond some of that stuff. Although I don't know what is she doing right now. That's uh, not me going. She's doing nothing now. No, she's no, finished. No. It's just like genuine question. What is she? What's Cameron Diaz doing right now? I'm not sure. But for anyone in the industry who's listening to this podcast, being like, what is Cameron Diaz doing? Like 
this is a prime example of what happens when you give her a character with agency and a character that has a lot of different layers. She can blow it out of the park. Right. And not for nothing, like even the first movie that she did, which was The Mask in 94, I think it was. Yeah. Um, now, yes, that character is, is pretty much the love interest, less agency certainly than Malkina has. But even getting to see her play something very sultry and almost femme fatale like, she didn't really get to do that again, as far as I know really until this right now, there are definitely there are definitely movies that she's done where she got to do a little bit more than just be like a ditzy uh romantic interest yeah but i don't i haven't seen her get to do that again until this movie and she's really good at it yeah uh you know what else she's really good at having sex with car windows i love how upset reiner was telling that story <laughs> <laughs> he was just like i don't want to talk about this like he I, seemed he really seemed so profoundly shaken <laughs> by it and that too seems to have been when like or that's the story he tells when he's telling the counselor without explicitly saying it that he's scared of her right like that was that was i guess the moment where he realized something is up with this woman <laughs> Um, I think my favorite part was his just description of it when he compared it to like a bottom feeder and he was just like, it's just, it's like when you see their, their lips on the, on the, on the tank. Um, cause it's like the least sexy way to describe a vagina is just like, yeah, yeah. It looked like one of those like angler fish things where it's just like slobbing up against the glass and having to like t- like wipe off his juices with his socks right like so he goes he's talking brutal. about how like and of course the the wiper fluid whatever the windshield wipers didn't work because and he's like the italians don't believe in that sort of thing <laughs> and then yeah he has to wipe off the finish let's say with his socks and of course the counselor finds this hilarious and reiner just seems very upset by the whole thing yeah. Uh, Reiner, by the way, is the Javier Bardem character who's in a relationship with Malkina, very much a a he's a big, like big flamboyant personality. He wears these bright, colorful shirts, he's got this crazy hair and the colored sunglasses. Yeah. And he's he's a club owner and he's an entrepreneur, but most of it is clearly financed with illicit money. And he very early on, and he's he is a friend of the counselors. They like they enjoy each other's company. He's the one who starts to tell him not just about this world. Uh, but also before he even meets Westray, uh, the Brad Pitt character who ends up reinforcing a lot of the cautionary things that Reiner tries to impart. He's the one who tells him about the world. And also you're not, you're not ready for this world. I I know that nothing I'm going to say now is going to stop you, but you're not ready for this. And that yeah. by the, is a big, a big running theme in a lot of the opening scenes. Even that early scene with Bruno Gans as the, uh, the diamond dealer, uh, it's all about like they hit they hit the cautionary diamonds thing really really hard. It's yeah. all about like the the movie the story and the characters in it, but the story itself is so aggressively trying to warn the counselor off of this right from the very very beginning. Bruno Gans, by the way, also phenomenal actor. Um, I know he's the lead in um Vim Vender's Wings of Desire, which is a great movie. Uh, huge body of work. He is uh, he played Hitler in Downfall great movie it's a bit basically about the last days of hitler's life in the bunker mm-hmm. and bruno gans gives this incredible performance but uh i feel like most people would know that performance primarily from how it got memed uh have you seen like on youtube all of the different variations on like hitler's really mad because he just got told the pats won the super bowl or whatever i have not seen any oh, of dude, those like, just youtube search like hitler gets mad and it's a scene from downfall where they just, instead of actually translating the German, they just put new subtitles in about some some pop culture thing, and Hitler ah. gets told about it, and he's very mad. Yes, I've seen that. Okay, so that's from Downfall, and okay. that's Bruno Gans' Hitler. Okay. I don't know why, but for some reason I thought it was from Inglorious Bastards. But No, 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 that's from Downfall. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so that actor, Bruno Gans, who plays the Diamond Dealer, is uh, Hitler in Downfall. Hey guys, Futuratari here. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to uh, shout out to some good friends of the show, uh, Wiki Ship Down Podcast. Um, check them out. Did you know a turkey puppet once ran for the presidency of Ireland? Did you know that meat once rained from the skies of Kentucky? Did you know that there was an emperor of the United States for a while? Then listen to the Wiki Ship Down podcast. We live in an age when the sum total of humanity's knowledge can be found in your pocket on a smartphone at any given time. 
But when that knowledge is pure editable, like it is on Wikipedia, what does that say about mankind? So follow us down the digital rabbit hole as we drink, joke, and curse our way through the random button on Wikipedia and see where our journey through humanity's knowledge takes us. While you're at it, follow us on all social media at Wikiship Down. I'm Ruth Ann. I'm Ryan. And be sure to find us every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Back to the show. But uh, another gr- another great scene too, where it's like you you wonder sometimes why these long, ponderous, philosophical, heady conversations are in the movie. But it's all they're directly laying out all of the theme. Even that uh, that phone call later in the story with uh, Ruben Blades. Um, again, it's just laying it's laying out. It's almost bookended, right? The diamond dealer conversation, and then the conversation on the phone with Ruben Blades, who essentially seems to be the guy within the cartel mm-hmm. that the counselor had some type of relationship with who uh, essentially tells him it's almost like you didn't listen to Bruno Gans, bitch. If you had listened to Bruno Gans and what he was trying to tell you, we wouldn't be here now. You already made the mistake. Like he lays it out very explicitly. He's like the world in which you have to live with the consequences of the mistake is different than the world in which the mistake was made. Right. And there is no going back now. You didn't, you didn't listen and there is no going back. You keep waiting for life to, take you back to that place yeah and it will not happen now but it's crazy because none of it was his fault which is i think the biggest bummer about the whole movie but that's but that is part of the point i think and i agree with you wholeheartedly but i think that's part of the point it's that he was not he was not ready for that world yeah he could not handle it and he was too he was too sure of himself he was too confident even though he was in a desperate situation he seemed so overconfident that he could handle it even when even when uh Reiner is telling him about the bolito uh, for example yeah. which the bolito is uh and if you've seen the movie you will not forget what a bolito is a bolito is essentially a mechanized garrote wire where you run up behind somebody you slip it over their head and then it's attached to a little motor which retracts the garrote wire Tighter and tighter and tighter until it rips through your carotid arteries. You die spraying blood and then it'll probably cut your head off. Right. Um, and you can't basically, unless you have a blowtorch or a really specific tool, like really specific cutters immediately on hand, there is literally nothing you can do and you will die. Yeah. Which, by the way, apparently the bolito is something that they invented for this movie. Oh, really? How long till there are bolitos? I mean, they're probably think, already right? there. I'm going like, I don't ever want to find out because if I find out, that probably means I'm dead. But <laughs> I am so painfully curious if there are already now Bolitos or if those are coming pretty soon. Yeah. Um, but when he's told about that, when Westray tells him about snuff films, when he's they're constantly tell like Westray has that line about like, if if you think that there is a level of depravity that these people are not capable of. You are mistaken. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but like, he's essentially like, no, there is no depth. They won't go to. If you think that there is behavior too depraved for these people, you are wrong. Yeah. And in that sense, no, it's not the counselor's fault that he ended up in a situation where there is a tie between him and the courier. He could not have known. It is not his fault that that courier gets decapitated. He could not have known. It is absolutely his fault that he chose to ignore the aggressive warnings of everyone around him and fully commit to this choice. That is on him. Right. Yeah, I guess so. And that's why he, he ultimately, he pays the price for his choices. Yeah, the world, the world that he chooses to enter into is one of the most horrifying, hideous, animalistic, predatory worlds imaginable. But it's also a lot of these people, and they make this point as well. The people who operate in this world, for them, it's mostly business as usual. Yeah. With the exception of certain elements of this world, like the snuff films, it's mostly just a matter of course. Like, we'll kill you and we won't even think about it because that's the course of business. Um, Yeah. And they like double down on this concept when they when in that one scene with John Leguizamo and Hank right, from the Breaking dude Bad. that they've just got in the barrel, right? And it's like, wh- where did he even come from? And it's just like, oh, it's just some guy. It's just we had to get rid of this guy, and it's like we had to get him out of Mexico, so we just put him on the truck, right? It's like, what's going to happen to him? Well, he's just going to ride around in the truck, basically, and at some point, we're going to try and sell the truck. Maybe it sells, maybe it doesn't, and if not, he's just going to keep riding around in the truck because that's America. Yep. Um, so I, I still don't get why 
the counselor was in such dire straits? Was it because of the diamond that he bought or was it because he just wasn't making money as a I didn't defender? see this really addressed explicitly. Okay. I think the diamond was certainly a factor because if you're already in dire straits financially, yep, that's a pretty expensive thing to, to put money down for. Right. Um, I do, I, I think the closest thing we've got to an explicit explanation is that, yes, we can infer that he got this diamond for Laura and he has to figure out a way to pay off the diamond. And maybe for ancillary reasons, business is not what he needs it to be. And suddenly he finds himself in a very disadvantageous position and he needs to be able to pay something off relatively quickly. Yeah. So he makes a brash decision. But again, he could have listened to literally any one of the, the, five characters probably that was telling him not to do this thing yeah like there's a better way than this Mm -hmm. uh but yeah doesn't listen and he's eventually he and everyone around him is ultimately punished even though what tips it is out of his hands yeah he chose to be in a position where something like that could blow back on him right um i want to talk a little bit about rayner um or as i like to call him Latin Vince Vaughn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could, he is a little bit like Vince Vaughn in Wedding Crashers. Yeah. Combined with like, he's a little bit like where where um, Vince Vaughn in Wedding Crashers meets Dr. Gonzo from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, he, for me, like it took a while for him to grow on me. Mostly because... Uh, we've talked about how it is kind of, like, it's a very dialogue heavy movie and a lot of his scenes are him being like, women are always doing this. Oh yeah. Women he's totally, always- oh yeah. Reiner's definitely, I think Reiner's an incredibly fun character, but he's not a great dude. Like, he's <laughs> definitely a misogynist asshole. Yeah. And like, and so, and I knew going in to the movie that the premise was that there was this drug deal happening. And so the first scene that you get with him, I guess technically the second scene you get with him, but the first scene you get with him and the cam- the counselor is him essentially being like, I don't know what this lady is up to. I don't know if this room is safe. Like, I don't know, man, let's just do this thing. And I was like, come on, you had to have like done any kind of drug deal before or seen a movie where like cops will, will like wire you. Come on, man. Well, also Reiner is very clearly, I don't know if we ever see him fully sober in the movie, for example, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like he's always every scene he's drinking or like he's definitely the way Javier Bardem plays him, like so so big and so um, not over the top though. Like without it becoming a caricature, he's yeah. just so. You know what it is? He reminded me of a little bit more. Remember Heinrich from Possession, mm-hmm. a little bit like Heinrich, except not quite as like flailing out of his own skin. Right. Um. But he's very like he's there. He's present. He's not. Um. He doesn't have any type of like, he's not mentally vacant, but he's always, it almost feels like he's floating a little bit. Like yeah. he's definitely, he's clearly on something in pretty much every scene. <laughs> um. So yeah, which is ultimately what I feel, what led to all the bad things happening in this movie in that like, I, you talked about this third party and I assume that they were all um, uh, Cameron Diaz's people. Like, well, she's definitely affiliated, certainly the people at the very end who hit, spoilers, who put the Belito onto Westray, um, they're obvious. We see explicitly, like, they get in the car and she pays them off and, and all of that. And, like, Natalie Dormer, who's in this from uh, Game of Thrones. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, she's she's uh, in league with her as well, although she actually apparently has enough of a conscience that she doesn't want to take Malkina's murder money. Well, yeah. I like that how game she was until it's like, oh, Jesus, no, I don't want your money. Leave me alone. But also, not for nothing... I would just honestly, I'd take the money because if I don't take the money, then you've got this woman wondering if you're a loose end and she clearly has no compunctions about killing the shit out of people. (laughs) So I might just take, I might take the money and like not keep it, like get rid of it or something. But like, cause you know, the conscience aspect of it, Yeah. but you would at least take it off the table. So this lady doesn't have to wonder about you. Right. Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure whether, because this, I don't think is ever answered explicitly. Certainly. Um, I don't know for sure if, like the third party, the the truck, like the all of that business with the truck and those guys, yeah, um, and the people who event first kill the courier. Uh, I don't know if those are 
people connected to her or if it's a situation that she sees she can jump into and take advantage of. It seems like they are, though, because in the scene where they're watching the first septic truck drop off, um, the people in the car um, are on the phone with her, or at least in the exchange between the courier and um, the septic tank guy, they're on the phone with her and she's like, all right, just take care of it. Um, and then oh, yeah. we get the scene with the dude decapitating them. And he's on the phone with a woman being like, yo, son, I just did the decapitare thing. We're going to take this truck, son. So that's the same guy who um, who takes the truck initially. And then the cartel eventually gets it back. Um, Can you imagine, by the way, the scene with the shootout on the road? Can you imagine being the fucking... Uh, the, the poor motorist who oh, stumbles yeah. upon this and it's like, fuck no, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> Turns around, but is then just shot up by this cartel guy. God. I It's their own, not to blame someone for getting shot up, but like, if you see that, and this is a tale for all our viewers, if you see a, a destruction in the street, you just, you back up. You don't three-point turn. Get get out of here. You, you just or go not, straight. Or not for nothing. If you can't turn back, like if you urgently need to get wherever you're going on that type of road you just you just veer into the sand and you keep the widest possible berth oh, yeah. around all of this you make sure that they're a speck in the distance as you <laughs> off-road around them uh but yeah nope you definitely don't drive straight towards it uh, <laughs> yeah especially once you you definitely got close enough that he maybe could have seen that stuff was on fire or whatever the shit and he kept kept going yeah. Um, uh, what? No, but that's a good point. We know certainly by the end of we know certainly by the time that they they accidentally take out Reiner, um, which I thought was so like, what a bummer. But also that seems so appropriate for his character. Right. Like they didn't intend to kill him. For, for I don't know what they were going to do with him otherwise. Yeah. Maybe just try and get like torture him, get information out of him, whatever. But like, yeah, they accidentally shoot him in the head. Yeah, I'm um, sure he suffered a better fate than he would have. Probably. Um, but but uh, you get that scene of Malkina where she's talking about how she called and basically just asked if they found a body on the side of the road. And they said yes. And she hung up. Yeah. It's like she knew. Right. Like she she was definitely instrumental in what ultimately ends up happening. Um, but it's, it's too like Reiner. You're right. Like Reiner ends up also royally screwing the pooch by allowing this all to unfold far too close to this, this very explicitly predatory person. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his mistake. His, his mistake coupled with the counselor's mistake of making, get, getting involved in this deal in the first place is ultimately, yes, it's the, it's the two working in conjunction with one another, because if Reiner's not involved or even if Reiner is involved and is just not drunk all the time it's totally possible that malkina never doesn't doesn't know i think she's smart enough that maybe she would have caught on eventually but i totally buy that reiner was sloppy enough about it yeah that no she knew everything she knew all of it and she knew exactly how she could bend the situation to her advantage and Mm -hmm. we don't know too much about her past, but there's enough there that you can infer, or at least I felt I could infer that she had suffered a great deal of abuse when she was younger, uh, at the hands of very monstrous men. Oh, really? I got that impression. Um, they don't, they don't hit it, but she just makes a couple of references to when she was a when she was a girl having more of these uh, ideals and more of these feelings and more like a tendency to miss things and long for things whatever yeah and that was you get the sense that that was stripped from her at a certain point got it I don't and I don't think you become that without being put through some very serious shit yourself right um I get the impression again I think it's a lot more it's it has a lot more to do with her her just being a, a predatory creature than it does with, you know, like, I I was treated badly by men, so I want vengeance on all men. Like, that's super reductive. I think right. there's definitely uh, something far more, honestly, far more frightening than that, which is just this is an animal. And I don't think you can, I don't think that you could uh, buy Malkina or reason with Malkina or plead with Malkina any more than you could with one of the leopards. Yeah. yeah. Cheetahs. Cheetahs. I think. Tell uh, you know what if you know how to spot the difference between a leopard and a cheetah, tweet at us at 
Missing Outcast. M A S S I N G O U T C A S T. Hell yeah. You spelled um, it right. I honestly don't know, though. This is like, this is a moment of profound ignorance. I keep calling um, them leopards because, you know, like, you can't expect a leopard to change its spots. Don't cheetahs have stripes? No, cheetahs have spots. So I can tell you right now. Um, and it's funny because she had leopard spots, but her cheetahs were cheetahs. cheetahs. So um, cheetahs have gathered spots. Or cheetahs have like individual spots, whereas leopards have like gathered clusters of clusters of spots. I see. Okay, so she does have leopard spots on her. Yes, but the cheetahs are cheetahs. Yes, but you can uh, see how I maybe got confused. No, of course, because she's like leopards this and leopards that, and then she's like, oh, them doing their hunting at seventy miles per hour, which is faster than cheetahs can run. Fact check me, baby. Um. But anyways, she ain't got no odometer when they do stuff. <laughs> she's a she's a fan, not an expert. Right. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It makes sense to me. Her her fandom is murder. <laughs> well, I mean, she's got a lot of canon to sort through. Um yeah, are right. you said you do you have more questions or have you run through most of your questions? Those are most of my questions. I mean, I still I still don't think I know what the counselor's part in the drug deal was, but I don't think it really matters. Um Well, that's the thing. It's ultimately it really isn't that important. Yeah. Like much this is a I don't I I just thought of Reservoir Dogs cuz Reservoir Dogs is pretty notably it's a heist movie without the heist. Yeah. Um this is this is pretty notably I think a, a drug deal movie without the actual drug deal in it. Yeah. Like the actual deal itself seems so incidental to everything else that's happening. Mm-hmm. Like the drug deal I think is only part of the it's like it's basically like a MacGuffin. Like the drug deal is only part of the story so that you can see the fallout of the drug deal and right. you can see what happens when you enter into this world and you're not ready for it or you enter into this world and you're you're better equipped to understand it, but you're not fully equipped to deal with it. And every character, really, every character that meets their end, with the exception, just all the spoilers for this movie, with the <laughs> exception of Laura, which is that's so it's so crushingly tragic. Yeah, um, she is an innocent victim, but every other character ends up meeting their respective fates as a result of mistakes that they made or choices that they made that they should not have in the case of the counselor it's getting involved in the first place in the case of reiner it's being as sloppy as he was and not getting all of this information as far from alkina as possible right in the case of westray westray makes it a point i think in his last meeting with the counselor when he says like no this is our life now like i'm getting out he's he makes a point to say he really should have gotten out a long time ago yeah and he didn't he chose to stay in it. And if he had gotten out a long time ago, he wouldn't be where he was by the time we get to the end of that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, and it's also, it's, it's the men who are making the mistakes. The two principal female characters want, and they're almost, they're diametrically opposed. Mm -hmm. One is Laura is a pure innocent as depicted in the story is a pure innocent. Yeah. And she is destroyed because the counselor makes a choice to enter this world where innocence and purity cannot survive. Um, Malkina is the polar opposite. Malkina is, is, I mean, as we keep saying, is a predator. Right. Um, and so one woman becomes the victim, uh, the, the casualty of the mistakes of these men. And one woman is the one exploiting the mistakes and poor choices of these men and turning them on them. Yeah. Damn. It's good shit. Yeah. It's a good movie. There is a lot. There is so, again, I totally understand why, even if you are not as opposed to the thing as it seems like a lot of people were upon its initial release, I totally, totally get how this is not going to be everybody's bag. Right. Even if you're not put off by uh, the 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 long, ponderous, talky scenes. Right. Uh, it's so, by the time you get to the end, it is so unrelentingly bleak. Yeah. These these men get essentially get themselves killed through their own folly, um, and Laura is abducted by the cartel, and you don't ultimately see what happens. Uh, uh, really, between between her abduction and the very last, the very last moments of the movie, where the counselor is uh, hide, it looks like he's hiding out in Mexico, and he receives a package, and it's a DVD, and he turns the DVD over, and it says "Hola" on mm-hmm. it, and he knows. He knows because Westray told him about the snuff films. He yeah. knows what this is. And the implication there is about as ugly as you can imagine. 
the implication is they raped and murdered her on camera. Right. And then you see that they they just dump her body literally into a dump. Like yeah. she is trash. It's no, it's it and I, I, I again I get why you even if you're on board with the long ponderous talkie stuff where maybe you just don't want to sit in that feeling. Right. I completely understand if that is the case. Um I will say I mean in the in the scene where he finds the DVD and he has that moment of realization. Yeah. And he knew, he knew when he had that phone call with Ruben Blades, like he he knew that she's de- she's dead. I mean, Ruben Blades essentially without explicitly saying it basically tells him as such. Right. But he still he still like Ruben Blades says he's still he's he's missing he's missing something in that he's hoping it'll come back and he is still waiting for life to take him back to that place he was in he cannot fully accept that there's no way back for him and for them until he sees that dvd and he real finally realizes what people kept trying to tell him he finally sees the truth of his situation and you get this truly truly fundamentally devastating piece of nonverbal performance from fassbender where i mean you don't see you don't see grief like that much like you don't see the raw human honesty of of two people in love being a little dirty with each other in a sexual situation yeah very rarely do you see raw unmitigated grief like that just somebody absolutely shattered to their core destroyed with grief you don't see that very often once again i totally get if maybe you (laughs) hear that and you're like i don't know if this movie's necessarily for me if you've got and again, they don't depict the violence, although the, the Belito scene is pretty gnarly. Right. And there is, it's not like there's no violence in this movie. They do not depict sexual violence, though they do, they do discuss it. Right. Um, you don't ultimately see what they do to Laura. You just, you can infer based on what you now know about the world, and you know that ultimately it ends with her being dumped like trash, which, yeah. um, but if you've got the stomach for it, uh, and again, it is, it is more discussion of the subject matter than it is depiction of the subject matter. Though, again, like, Homeboy gets his head cut off. Yeah. Um, Though I hear, or I think I read that in the theatrical version, it is, like, truncated. I'm so sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure every, everything that's a bit, a bit graphic is probably true. But again, like, nothing... If you can handle, like, Tarantino movies, you can handle every bit of the violence in this movie. It's yeah. more the idea of the violence... Uh, is is profoundly disturbing uh, right. more than what is actually depicted. Yeah. But I I I don't know I love this movie on a thematic level. I love the I mean Cormac McCarthy is a novelist primarily, so it it makes sense that it it's very it feels very prose heavy. Yeah. But I love the heady ponderous stuff and I love like Ridley Scott is a weirdo. I love that Ridley Scott is a weirdo because I think you'd need Ridley Scott to actually have, you'd need somebody with the clout and with the sensibility and with the talent and the, the technical savvy, but mostly, mostly really just the confidence and the clout to adapt McCarthy's script that way and not try to change it, add to it, take away from it for the sake of making a crowd pleasing piece of entertainment. Yeah. And I, yeah, I love that it doesn't shy away from the ugliness of it. And I love I love the way that it uses this world and the ugliness of this world to reinforce uh, ideas of, of choice and of consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I dig this movie a lot. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. Um, I, I don't think I typically tend to traffic in in sad, bleak movies. I like bleak ideas i just don't like to live in the sad feelings for me it's Um, more for me it's more like my brain goes to these places a lot i feel like honestly if you're paying attention to the world as it exists right now it's hard not to yes uh for me and no i don't want to live in that feeling certainly but for me it's honestly it's really nice sometimes to see a story like this because it gives me this feeling of oh thank god i am not the only person who sees and feels these things right yeah, and so uh, now, granted, I don't, I don't know shit about about the world of cartels. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, nah, man. Everyone knows Lex is is knee deep in them cartels. He's I, like, I believe all the drugs. seven people before breakfast. Yeah, and then another six people between breakfast and podcast. Total Belitoist. Uh, 
Um, but I, I, I appreciate moments where you are willing to look at the world as it is, ugliness and all, and not shy away from it, not be too afraid to accept it as it is, not be so afraid to accept it as it is that you create all of these illusions for yourself. And I get that people have to do that. You yeah. have to, all of us have to do that to some extent just to make it through a day. Right. But sometimes you have to stop and you have to look at the ugliness of the world because the world's a pretty ugly place and it will only ever become less ugly if we un just we don't flinch and we stare directly at it. Right. We have to because that's the by face facing it is the only way you can ever do anything about it. But we all all of us one person alone is not going to change the world. One person can inspire other people, but one person can't change it all themselves. We all all of us I think have a responsibility as much as we are able to stare directly into the bleakness and the ugliness and say hell no and turn that tide. Yeah. I appreciate that there are people who tell stories like this and I don't believe that anybody told this story to make people feel sad. Although yeah, I'm sure they want you to feel affected. I don't think that the purpose of this story was to make you feel like shit. No. If making you feel like shit was intentional, it's about a little bit more than just making you feel bad stuff. Right. It's a cautionary diamond that's supposed to make you realize that consequences exist based on your actions. Right. And that you can you can miss what was, but life is not going to take you back to that place. Right. What's done is done. What's past is past. And what's changed is changed. And yes, there are occasionally, you know, you can have a conflict and you can resolve a conflict. And maybe like with a person, you can get back to where you were. But you can't you can't go back to a world in which that never happened. Yeah. And you have to be able to accept that. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I can't speak for other people. I'm sure that's something that's something that I've certainly struggled with in the past. I feel like that's a pretty universal thing is struggling to accept the consequences of your decisions. Uh, and there's, it's, it's different than taking responsibility. Like, that's not what I mean. Like, obviously, I think it's on all of us to take responsibility for our mistakes. Right. But that doesn't mean that somewhere in our minds we're not, even if we're not fully conscious of it, we're not desperately clinging to the idea that, oh, well, if I own my mistakes and I do something about it or I, tr I try to like face it head on, that everything can go back to the way it was. And that's yeah. not true, unfortunately. And that's that's a reality that I feel like is is universal. That is that is the the necessity of facing the truth of your situation. Mm -hmm. which they hit really directly um, yeah. in that phone call with Ruben Blades late in the movie. All of that, like I really like and appreciate that they're telling a story that can incorporate all of these ideas and do more than pay lip service to them, that can actually dramatize them in a way that, yes, is primarily conveyed through conversation, but it is still taking these really big ideas that I think, though the world they're in is not a world that everybody's a part of, thank God, um, it's a universal idea. And it's a it's an incredibly jarring, bleak, big way to dramatize those ideas. Yeah. Nice. I think that's a good place to cut uh, to to wrap up. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Was there like anything else specific that I wanted to hit? Um, but I feel like we pretty broadly hit most of it. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, so. Hey guys, thanks for joining us here on Missing Out. Uh, if you had thoughts or opinions on the movie, hit us up on our Twitter, Missing Outcast, M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. Nailed it. Uh, or on our personal Twitters, if you really just kind of want to speak to us as individual people. Uh, where can they find you, Lex? I am all over social media, including Twitter, at the Lex Michael. And you can find me at Tari J, T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. As you know, if you're listening to this, you can find us all over iTunes, Google Play Store, Stitcher, and Podbean. Um, so if you have a chance, leave us a comment uh, or a star rating. It really helps us get to the top of the charts, helps other people find us, and helps more people enjoy this content that you are enjoying now. Do you like what's happening right at this moment? Maybe not right at this moment, but like usually genuinely in this podcast. Oh, I feel great about it. Good. Yeah. Then and I'm not just saying that to make you feel better. Uh, even if you were, I'd still take it. 
Um, so yeah, go on our our uh, platforms and let everyone know what you think of it. Uh, hopefully five stars if you really enjoy it. And tell your friends, word of mouth is amazing. Word of mouth is so good. Oh yeah. It's so good. Word of mouth. Mouth words. Mr. Mouth words. It's Tari J. Miller is Mr. Mouth words. Hello, I'm Mr. Mouth words. And that's, by the way, you change nothing when you slip into your Mr. Mouth words identity, except you talk like that and no one knows. It's true. And then when the movie comes out, it's like, wow, it's it's like black Christopher Reeves in Superman. It's like all he does is make a weird face and talk like that. And everyone buys that it's a different person. And so do we. <laughs> you will believe a man can talk like this. I'm Mr. Mouthwash. I buy it. Buy it. Wiki ship down. He sold it so Wiki well. Wiki ship down. He was so, he was so oh. into it that he couldn't get a sentence oh, out. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I was listening to it while making the, the fucking thing. Advertisement promo, bitch.